1: I'm Joe Devine and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. This is just a uh, brief introduction to let you know that I am currently on holiday for a couple of weeks. So Josh, from our other podcast, This Football Life, has kindly agreed to cover my absence uh, for a couple of episodes. And he's got uh, two brilliant guests lined up. Uh, the episodes sound really exciting, so without further ado, I will leave him to introduce uh, what's happening today and also what's happening next week. But I uh, hope you all have a lovely time, and I will be back in a couple of weeks. So speak to you then.
0: As Joe said, I'm Josh Schneiderweiler from TIFO's This Football Life podcast, and I'm happy to be hosting these two weeks while Joe is away on a holiday. And like you guys, I'm going to miss his smooth, melodic voice too. But the show must go on, and for this week's episode, I chat with David Bulkover, author of The Greatest Comeback, which chronicles one of football's first coaching pioneers, Bella Gutmann. A brief background on Bella, he played in Austria, Hungary, and in the United States in the 1920s, and then coached in Austria and Hungary in the 1930s. He then survived the Holocaust in truly remarkable fashion before coaching in numerous countries, including Italy, Brazil, and Portugal. He's most famous for being Benfica's manager when they won back-to-back European Cups in 1961 and 1962. We discuss all of this and more on this week's episode of the Tifo Football Podcast. I'm here with David Bolkover, uh, author of *The Greatest Comeback*. David, how are you doing today?
1: Very well, thank you.
0: Uh, in your book, uh, you repeatedly compare Bella uh, Gutman uh, to Jose Mourinho many, many times, and I'm, I'm curious how are they? How are the two similar?
1: I think in, in, in the, the main reason is that Gutman was such a short-term manager, and that, that's what Mourinho is known for. So, in, in, a, in a crude sense, I think we can divide football managers into two. Uh, we can uh, the first category is the, the short-term manager, who comes in often, uh, you know, as a change agent when things aren't going well uh, in a football club, and, and by the sheer force of their uh, personality and by making astute short-term signings, they turn things around. And uh, Goodman was very much the archetype of that short-term manager, and I think Mourinho falls into that category as well. Obviously, we have the, 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 there's the long-term manager as well. You know, Alex Ferguson, Matt Busby. The, these managers are, are more uh, uh, prevalent, have been more prevalent in, in in British football history than on the continent. Uh, but Goodman certainly. Uh, is, was never a long-term manager. He only managed the third season actually once, and that was at Benfica when he wa- actually won the European Cup in his third season. So that that is that is the main similarity with Mourinho, but there are a lot of differences as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's famous for having the quote uh, the third season is fatal. Um, but there, were, there was something else that really stood out to me uh, which uh, I just kind of gravitated towards more, which was he seemed to always be an outsider, uh, I mean he has a quote, that, or there's a quote in the book that he said, uh, which was, I always had two burdens to carry. One is due to the fact that I'm everywhere a foreigner, and the other is because I'm a Jew. And I've always felt that Mourinho was a, always felt like you know, he had a him against the world mentality because he always felt like he was an outsider, uh, w- would you agree?
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, football managers, I think, I think, I think a lot of the football, great football managers do tend to be uh, outsiders and they, they sort of convey this spirit to their team and that creates some sort of bunker mentality, motivation. Uh, it, it's, it's us against the world. Uh, Gutmann was the archetypal uh, outsider. Uh, he suffered from a lot of racism, anti-Semitism throughout his career. He was a Holocaust survivor. He didn't trust. He he didn't trust anybody, and I think it was th- this feeling of outsiderness, uh, which enables him and other outsiders to be innovative. If you're part of a club, uh, if you're an insider, it, you might get a comfortable career working inside a large uh, corporation, just agreeing with what everyone else says. But if you're an entrepreneur, and Gutman and Mourinho are footballing entrepreneurs, if you like, innovat- innovators. Uh, then it helps if you're an outsider because you reject the common wisdom and you you, you follow your
0: own path and
1: you set a new agenda
0: so how how was he an innovator? How was he progressive i i th-
1: I think the main reason uh, he was a, he, he did come up with some tactical uh, innovations, but I think the main innovation was really establishing the cult of the coach. He was absolutely um, uh, insistent that he, as the coach, has complete control over the team. Now, you know, uh, Ferguson, Alex Ferguson, often said the coach needs total control to, to, to be able to operate effectively. It was Gutman, I think, who first articulated this point so clearly that the coach is vital to team success and the coach must have complete control, not the board of directors. And uh, it seems difficult to believe now, because now we're very much uh, living in the era of the cult of the coach. But before Goodman, that cult, the the importance of the coach had not yet been fully established. Uh, It was the players who were deemed really to achieve the success. The coach was relatively unimportant. And of, of course, Goodman throughout his career was pushing for more money and despite his success, often he'd be turned down. That would be unheard of now. So he was a pioneer in pushing this idea of the importance of the coach.
0: Uh, but but how did he kind of uh, push it um, and and make it so uh, accepted, or you know, make this cult of the coach? How did he do it?
1: He he, he was a great uh, uh, self-advertiser, uh, a bit like Mourinho. Uh, you know, talking about his successes, making sure that everyone understood what he was doing, how he had changed things, how he had achieved success. And uh, there are so many quotes that I think dotted throughout my book uh, about uh, about with Goodman saying what he'd achieved and angry that others had not recognized what he had done, saying, look at Benfica. What have they done since I, I've left, et cetera? And uh, I, 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 I really promoting this idea in the public sphere that the coach is all important.
0: Yeah, and I mean, he was also, you know, kind of er, early in the game, used the media to, you know, manipulate his players and play the, you know, the game that now Jose Mourinho is so famous for uh, with using the media as a psychological tool. I mean, I know he did it with refs as well and, uh That was was he was kind of you know one of the first to do that as well. Yeah, you know, you know,
1: Mourinho says things like, um, uh, you know, the, the, the 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 football match does not start when the referee blows his whistle. The football match starts when I have my press conference the day before the game, because that effectively is when he can motivate his own players and he can intimidate the opposition and the media often refer to Mourinho and Ferguson uh, using the press conference as, as great psychology, as if, as if it's an, a, an innovation. But Gutmann was doing all this 60 years ago. Before the European Cup semi-final in uh, 1962, Benfica were playing a Tottenham Hotspur. It was the second leg at White Hart Lane. And Benfica had won the first leg 3-1. And the second leg was about to take place at White Hart Lane. This is, by the way, the biggest match ever in the history of Tottenham Hotspur. And they were, Spurs were a great side. And um, many people were tipping them for victory. They'd won the double uh, the year before. And uh, Goodman got the press together the day before the game. And the first thing he said was, I'm worried about this referee, this Danish referee. He's weak. Uh, my players are small, skillful Portuguese players. Uh, We're facing the the, the likes of Dave Dave Mackay, Bobby Smith, these tough, physical, typical British players. I don't think the referee will be up to it. And by the way, I'm leaving at the end of the season because Benfica won't pay me any more money, effectively. So by doing those two things, he put pressure on the referee and he took pressure off his players by distracting the media away from his players and on to him. And afterwards, he said he was very pleased. With the referee's performance, that he gave so many free kicks to Benfica. Yeah,
0: so so a little reverse psychology, you know, sixty years in advance. <laughs> Absolutely. Mean, uh, you you mentioned you know he's had a profound effect on coaches now, uh, you know, Mourinho and uh, many others, but or Sir, Sir Alex Ferguson. Uh, but what coaches rubbed off on him? You know, before he was a manager, I mean, I think he started in the late 30s, uh, if my memory from the book serves me correctly. So, you know, who kind of preceded him?
1: The, the biggest influence on government's career by his own uh, uh, admission and a, a huge influence on other great Hungarian coaches. And in fact, on the, uh, the great Hungarian team, teams uh, of the post-war era, was a was a British guy, uh, uh, Lancastrian by the name of uh, Jimmy Hogan. And he, Jimmy Hogan, ended up at MTK Budapest. He actually uh, resigned uh, shortly or, or left shortly before Gutmann started playing for MTK. But his influence on MTK and on Hungarian football uh, was huge. In fact, Gustav Sebes, who was the coach of the great Hungarian golden team of the 1950s, said that everything that the, the way Hungarians played owed everything to uh, Jimmy Jimmy Hogan, and Hogan had a great accent uh, on, on on fitness. He, he he believed in very rigorous uh, training schedules. He believed in clean living, uh, non-drinking. Uh, this is 60, 70 years ahead of its time when it when we look at UK British football, for example, where players were still getting bladdered the night before the match. 20, 30 years ago. Um, so he he was a he. Very, Jimmy Hogan was very much uh, an outsider. He was always looking for that little one percent of an advantage for his team. He was he he brought in uh, young players. He located he identified young players of great potential, and then he inculcated them with his own preferred uh, style of play. The accent, that style of play was very much a passing game, uh, which was innovative in Europe at the time. And Gutmann uh, took on a lot of Hogan's characteristics, I believe.
0: Yeah, yeah, that way of really giving uh, youth, power, uh, youth power and uh, ability. I mean, there's a great quote that uh, I wrote down uh, from, from your book that Jimmy Hogan said, which was, the basis of modern football in this age must be built Around the Holy Trinity of handling the ball, fitness, and constructive tactics. I mean, if that was said in the '90s or the 2000s, you know that would have still been seen been seen as quite a, you know revolution. Well, not revolutionary, but like you know, progressive, forward-thinking idea. I mean,
1: that's right. Uh, yeah, he, he he really was. Uh, he really was ahead of his time, uh, Jimmy Hogan. He ne- he never really made it in English football. Uh, they were suspicious of a of a guy that had had gone abroad. These these were, they, these were very uh, British football. Only became open really to foreign influence in the last twenty thirty years, and it was an extremely parochial then. So this whole idea of an English football manager going abroad, he he wasn't really respected uh, for that. You mentioned young coaches, young young players, and of course this is this is a major uh, difference between uh, Gutman and uh, Mourinho. I talked about the similarities. But there were differences as well. And one of those differences was uh, the fact that Goodman trusted young players. He famously brought in Antonio Samoes at the age of 17 to make his debut in the World Championship final for Benfica against Penarol in 1961. This is something that Mourinho would never do. He would never bring in a player for the debut at age 17 for such a big, such a big match.
0: Yeah, and and Eusebio, and uh, you give countless examples in the book of of, of players he gave an opportunity, uh, very early on when it when they didn't really have that the, the uh, experience and pedigree, uh, and you know y- you mentioned how the British were you know wary of uh, I- uh, outside influence. Although, like you know, I, I was speaking with Ron Atkinson a couple months ago, and he actually mentioned Jimmy Hogan, and. Uh, how it even influenced him, uh, because he was uh, talking about uh, how uh, Hogan came with the, he was watching the Hanved team and uh, you know, in the early 50s. So, I mean, it, it did reach a couple people, I know that. <laughs> yeah,
1: He's six. He managed uh, Padova, Triestina, then he got his big break at AC Milan, and then he, he he managed Vicenza. Now, in all four of those instances, he started off uh, with incredibly uh, uh, successful results. Uh, and, uh, and it looked like, for example, at AC Milan in the 1954-05 uh, season that he was about to win the league uh, because they'd started off so well, uh, but then they, t- uh, then, then they faded. And I think the reason was that he trained the players too hard. He believed very much in fitness but there was a, there was a recurring pattern here that they um, that the the the, the player the, the the teams faded away in the second half of the season. So it was obvious that the players were getting physically uh, exhausted. So he amended his strategy and he he, he relaxed his training schedule. And also uh, one of his innovations was rotation. Uh, and again, rotation is often uh, thought of considered to be. A relatively modern concept that uh football managers realize that players get too tired uh that they can't play 60 70 games a season uh and the, the uh the players uh, the manager needs to rotate the squad well Mourinho, uh, sorry goodman was doing that in the early 1960s with his benfica players uh there was one uh, instance where they had two legs of the european cup semi-final within six or seven days of each other and there was a league gap league game which is quite important sandwiched in between and Gutmann actually rested eight of his players. So he uh, he obviously came to the conclusion that he needed to go easy on the players a little bit.
0: Yeah, and and so this whole transformation, he's really, this is when he started learning uh, his trade, because obviously he got uh, his, his trade uh, kind of curtailed a bit because of the Holocaust and his development stunted a bit. So he was still kind of Undergoing that that learning, and it really kind of all came into fruition in Brazil. Uh, can you speak just a little bit about the influ- how Brazil influenced him, and then also his uh, big impact on Brazilian football?
1: Well, I think uh, he had an inc- incredibly successful spell in world football between 1957. Uh, and 1962. He was already in his late 50s by the time that period started. You've got to understand that his career was uh, delayed uh, somewhat by the fact that he spent six years in in what should have been the peak of his career, uh, trying to escape from the Nazis. So Brazil really put him on on the right path. He went to manage Sao Paulo in uh, 1957, and he won uh, the Brazilian League there. Uh, And I think uh, what this enabled him to do uh, was to marry the great technique of the uh, Brazilian players with the more pragmatic uh, European uh, style. And I think this is why uh, he was so successful there. He's often been credited with bringing the 4-2-4 formation uh, from Europe to Brazil. The 4-2-4 formation was then used by Brazil uh, in 1958 when they won the World Cup. Uh, Jonathan Wilson, in, in his book, uh, The History of Football Tactics, uh, called the Inverting, Inverting the Pyramid, he, um, he says this isn't actually true and that the 4-2-4 formation had actually been uh, already introduced into Brazilian football. But what Gutmann did, did bring in was this directness. And he was very keen to tell his Brazilian players who were intoxicated often by uh, very ostentatious uh, displays of skill uh, that they these were all very well. But if they didn't result in a goal, there was not there was no really point. And and, and he, he encouraged his Brazilian players to be more direct, to shoot, to cross. Uh, at, uh, at 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 more at more opportunity when they had that opportunity to do so, and uh, not to uh, and, and not to get too distracted uh, by just trying to impress the crowd with ball juggling, for example.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, it really comes through in the book. Just when you're in the box, shoot it, shoot it again, shoot it some more. Like it, it was driven really home to his his players. Absolutely. Uh and, and so then how did, so what did he take from Brazil? I mean, and also just for the, for the listeners, you know, at the time he went to Sao Paulo, they were not a powerhouse club. They were not the, the Sao Paulo that we know now, uh, just, just for the listeners uh, to know that. But how did uh, Brazilian football impact him as he moved to, to Benfica?
1: I, I, th- I, th- I think the main, the, main, the main thing really was it gave him momentum in his career. Uh, And it was a major trophy uh, and it alerted the Portuguese speaking world to good because obviously the the Brazil and Portugal have very close links. The fact that he achieved so much in Brazil really got him the job at FC Porto in 1958 Uh, and he went from strength to strength there as well, and then on, on, then on to Benfica after that.
0: Yeah, and he won the title at, at Porto uh, as well, which they hadn't done in, in, a, in a long time uh, as well. And then he, he made the, the, mo- the m- much-hated uh, move to their rivals, uh, ben- Benfica. Um, can you kind of describe uh, just one, uh, that transition, but from Porto to Benfica, and also at the time, what, what he was walking into at uh, Benfica?
1: Uh, Portugal uh, are the European champions now and we have a tendency to think of Portugal as a major uh, footballing nation. But in the 1950s, in the late 1950s, uh, they weren't. I don't think they'd even qualified for a World Cup then. Uh, The uh, Portuguese teams hadn't got past the first round of the European Cup since its inception in uh, 1955. Benfica themselves hadn't won the league For two years, and he went from Porto, who were their hated rivals, and he went having won the league with Porto in 1959. He immediately left uh, because Benfica offered him more money, uh, and uh, and set about resting uh, the league back. He 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 was a hated figure in Porto for obvious reasons for the next few years. Uh, But what I say in my book is that you know maybe some. Uh, people would be intimidated by making that move and having to have a police guard uh, every time he went uh, back to Porto with his Benfica team. But after what he had experienced as a Jew playing for Jewish teams uh, in Austria uh, and in Hungary, uh, this would have been all watered off the ducks back and would have been completely tame by comparison.
0: Yeah, and, and so he wins back-to-back Cups and and then he and then after that he leaves uh which I, I think is very telling of of him as a as a coach and as a person cuz i mean he left because of money uh they as you mentioned uh at that time they didn't really respect coaches as much and he left because of the money and i thought that was really illustrative of his of his career and kind of ties into his uh Jewish identity I mean this was something that happened numerous times in his career, as you mentioned from Porto as well uh, so can you just kind of uh elaborate on that a little bit
1: yeah he he Goodman didn 't really have any loyalty to any any club he didn 't have any loyalty uh towards any country and given his experiences in his life where not only did he survive the Holocaust but he also uh, fled from antiSemitism uh Uh, uh, other times for example in in Hungary in the early 1920s uh, this isn't really uh, this is really not surprising he uh, realized that the world uh, was not going to do him any favors uh, that the world showed him no loyalty and therefore he was going to get the maximum he could from from every club uh, from every club he could uh, and make the most of his ability to manage football teams uh, it was as simple as
0: that yeah, and he wasn't he re- wasn't really financially well off and and you get into the book uh in a lot more detail and i and I won't now because we don't have all day to talk about it, but you know he wasn't extremely well off because he lost all of his money in the the great depression um you know in in the early thirties uh so he he was you know kind of back to square one um for a lot of his career but uh the, it's interesting because he's almost most well known for his curse, the curse of that he, uh, you know, legendarily or mythically put on Benfica. Uh, and it's something that isn't really verified. I mean, even you and your book kind of talk about how it—it it, it was kind of just a myth that he put this curse on Benfica that they wouldn't win for, you know, 100 years. And uh, they've lost eight European finals since. So can you uh, <laughs> kind of talk about the origin of this curse?
1: Yeah, uh, well, the first time it's really mentioned uh actually was not people think that this people have been talking about the curse since gutman left in 1962 when he allegedly said to the benfica board when they didn't give him more money having won the european cup for the second year in succession he allegedly said to them uh you benfica will not win another european trophy for 100 years and they've been in eight finals since then they've they've lost every single one Uh, people think uh, that we've been talking about the curse since 1962 but actually the first time it really appears uh, in the Portuguese press is in the late 1980s when Benfica 1988, I think it was, when Benfica lost on penalties in the European Cup final to uh, PSV Eindhoven. No, th- there isn't documentary, uh, documented evidence of any curse by uh, Bella Gutman. What I would say is that he was exceptionally angry with Benfica for the way he thought he was treated. Uh, For the fact that they didn't give him the money he wanted, for the fact that they then paid other coaches who were nowhere near as successful as him, subsequent coaches, more money than he was paid. He was absolutely livid about it. So if he um, he probably did curse Benfica in some way, uh, but not necessarily in, in the words that have been attributed to him.
0: Uh, did you find in your uh, research that like fans in Benfica still believe in this curse?
1: Oh yeah, they they are obs- they're obsessed by it. It's all it's all over the internet the whole time, and uh, you know any time Benfica get near to a European final, uh, the, you know the chat among in in the Benfica, um, uh, you know in social media uh, starts accelerating. Yeah, they're obsessed by it. And there's one famous story, of course, when uh, Eusebio, who um, actually discovered in Mozambique in uh, in 1960. And uh, before the European Cup final in 1990, uh, Gutmann had died in 1981. And Eusebio had retired by that point, but Benfica were due to take on AC Milan in uh, Vienna. And Gutmann is buried in Vienna. And Eusebio allegedly went to the grave of uh, Gutmann in the Jewish cemetery in Vienna and he is said to have knelt before the grave and asked gutman to to lift the curse uh, but obviously gutman refused and, and Milan won
0: 1-0 since you brought it up uh, he's he's buried in a jewish cemetery and uh, something that you you uh, go into depth in the book is the love of his wife who is a christian and yeah. she's and he's buried in an Orthodox uh, Jewish cemetery, and she obviously cannot be buried there uh, next to him. Uh, so it, clearly his Jewish uh, identity, uh, there was, you know, he had a real identity with it uh, to be buried away from his wife. And so I was hoping you could just kind of go into how strong the, his Jewish identity was and his connection and how it uh, intermixed with his coaching and his playing career for that matter as well
1: well his, his playing career was almost exclusively spent playing for Jewish teams uh, it's quite it was quite possible it seems difficult to believe now uh, but it was quite possible before the Holocaust for a top player to play almost his entire career for only Jewish teams He started off at mtK uh, Budapest which was a, a club founded uh, by a Jewish Business people and supported by mostly Jews. Even now, uh, their sparse crowds are populated mostly by uh, Hungarian Jews. He then went to Hakoach Vienna, a very different type of Jewish club. Uh, they were uh, the Jewish Jewish nationalism was uh, very much to the forefront. Uh, it was a Zionist uh, football team. That was the ethos of the club. They wore the blue and white of the Jewish national movement. They wore a large Star of David on their shirts. Uh, they used to sing uh, the Hatikva, the song of the Jewish national movement, now the Israeli national anthem, uh, before, before the game. And remarkably, this team, in the midst of appalling hatred and racism, won the Austrian League, which is a very high-quality league, uh, in 1925. The government then went, went off to the United States Again, he played for uh, Jewish teams, Hakoach uh, New York, Hakoach All-Stars. These were teams based on the ethos of Hakoach uh, Vienna. So, uh, yeah, he, along with many uh, Jewish players, uh, played for Jewish teams. He had a very strong uh, Jewish social network. And you can see throughout his career, his coaching career, that other Jews helped him uh, to to find new jobs, in terms of his Jewish identity, uh, this is very extremely complex, uh, and Gutman played down his Jewishness after the war, as did many uh, of the remnants, the few remnants of European Jews after the Holocaust, uh, for obvious reasons. They 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 feared anti-Semitism, uh, ha- having gone through what they did, and they just wanted to get on with their own. Their own lives. Uh, He had another. The the only time, actually, when he mentioned uh, overtly being Jewish was after it was in 1964. In 1964, he actually published an autobiography. Uh, uh, It published in German. Uh, And despite the fact he played for all these Jewish teams, despite the fact that he was a survivor of the Holocaust, despite his own upbringing, he doesn't mention the word Jew in the entire book of 80,000 words. So this is, this, is, this is a demonstration of how much he was trying to hide his Jewish identity. But in that very same year, he got a job as the coach of the Austrian national team. And he lost his temper, effectively, after a few months. He said he just couldn't stand the constant anti-Semitism from the players, the media uh, and the footballing establishment. And that was the only time really on record. Where he talked about the anti-Semitism he had to face throughout his career.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, it 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 really blew my mind when I saw I read that that he had, didn't mention the word Jew once in his entire autobiography. I mean, it, it I I was kind of dumbfounded when I read that. <laughs> it was it was quite remarkable. Uh, is it, is there any favorite Bella story that you have um, that you think might you know summarize or characterize his career uh, or uh, his, you know, Jewish identity, or um, any some part of the hardships that he went through. Well, there,
1: there, there, there are there, are, there are so many, really. I mean, really, the 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 the, the story which really hits home um, is the story which he recounts himself of his time in in a slave labor camp. In the surrounds of Budapest in 1944, uh, when he describes the sadism of the Hungarian guards, the humiliation uh, that he had to uh, that he had to uh, endure. Uh, and uh, the fact that just trying to imagine this, this, this guy who wasn't a young guy then he was 45 and this would have finished off uh, many people. And his father, who was 78, was murdered at Auschwitz. His sister was murdered, his nephew, his sister-in-law, his brother-in-law, his whole community really uh, was wiped off the face of the earth. And so many of us would crumble in, in that situation. And people ask me whether I like Gutman. There's a lot not to like about Bella Gutmann. He's, he's a very complex character, but my admiration for him is huge. Uh, The fact that he managed to put all this behind him, uh, this terrible humiliation and personal grief and trauma. And just 16 years later, lift the greatest, most prestigious sporting tournament in the very continent that had wanted him dead so recently uh, is for me such an incredibly powerful story
0: it It really is, and uh the book you know i 'm not just saying this because uh, i'm trying to uh, you know suck up to you i i i I love the book, and uh, that transformation was incredible i have to I have to know is there anything that didn't make it in the book that uh, you would have liked to include
1: i there's a couple of things um, Goodman lost his job in nineteen thirty nine he just won as you said the Hungarian League and also the Mitropa Cup, which was the primary um, cross-border football competition at at that time, the precursor to the European Cup. And he lost his job in 1939. He got an informal job as a scout behind the scenes. Uh, Jews weren't allowed to have uh, uh, very overt roles like coach of a top football team. But uh, the Jewish chairman at Oipesh, the club, gave him... Uh, a part-time role as a scout, uh, scouting, uh, you know, opposition for Oipecht in advance of games. Uh, but there, there is a gap uh, that we can't fill. And that, I think, is from about 1939 and 1942, when he, I think, was offered this uh, this part-time role. And I, I su- strongly suspect that those three years were an awful period for Bella Gutman. There weren't jobs for Jews. Jews were effectively banned from many occupations, most uh, and uh, companies had a limit on the amount of Jews they could employ. So many Jews were forced into unemployment. I, I think Goodman himself probably suffered from terrible poverty uh, during those three years. I would love to be able to find out more uh, about what happened those missing uh, three years. There's one incident that I did try to um, uh, dig further on. Um, I mentioned the parochialism of English football, and it seems amazing now to think that this great uh, great coach who achieved so much uh, and won the European Cup uh, was never uh, offered a job in England. And he made overtures uh, to English teams after he won the European Cup uh, for the second time in 1962. Bear in mind, he had lived in the United States for six years in the 20s and 30s, so he must have spoken English well. And he made overtures. He, he had an article in the Evening Standard uh, on the day of the Tottenham Hotspur semi-final. And he was interviewed and he said, listen, I, I really want to manage in England. It's The, it, it, the, 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 the English founded the, the game of football. I'd love to manage there. And there was only one team that approached him. And that team was Port Vale, who had just finished 12th in the English third division. And i have actually written to Port Vale to try and find... Out, if they know anyth- anything more about uh, that approach, uh, but I, ha- I haven't managed to find anything out from them. Uh, I would love to, I would love to know more about that and w- what actually happened. Uh, uh, what actually happened in that approach it is it is one of the more uh, remarkable stories in the in, in the Gutman biography?
0: Yeah, quite quite fascinating. And if if anyone in Port Vale right now is reading this uh, and, and you know anything, uh, <laughs> shoot us an email. Um, you know um but what a what a fascinating career i we we could go on and on uh, i mean cuz the the story is incredible and we haven't even touched on uh his incredible playing career and uh, as you mentioned a lot of the holo, uh, you know holocaust years which you go into great depth um, in the book about or not it, your investigation into those years and um, the, those preceding years but uh thank you so much uh, for chatting and telling us about, uh, Bella uh, Gutman. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure too.